0: Today, we have a great topic with my friend, Emma Cosgrove. The topic is last mile innovation. How's it going, Emma?
1: It's going great, Joe. How are you?
0: Very good. Very good. I'm glad we finally get to do this podcast. I don't know if all of you pay attention to Emma Cosgrove. If you don't, you need to. She's a great writer. And it's funny, the last few, I think the last week I'd done podcasts and people said, oh, yeah, Emma's going to be on your show. That's great maybe Ben Gordon said it. I think I heard it from the guys over at JBF Consulting and I heard it from Rick Watson. So these are people who I really respect and they respect what Emma's doing. So before we go any further, Emma, please introduce yourself and your company.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Emma Cosgrove and I'm a senior reporter on the transportation desk at Business Insider and I cover logistics.
0: Awesome. And you do it very well. So tell us a little bit about you. where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And uh, what kind of kid were you?
1: Oh, God. Um, yeah, I grew up in um, in Maryland, in, in Annapolis, in that area.
0: Oh, I was just there on vacation. Very nice place.
1: It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very nice. A lot of nice. history. <laughs> a lot of history. Oldest state house in the country, I'm told. Yeah, and I went to George Washington University for university, so studied so journalism in, in D.C.
0: Give us some career highlights.
1: Oh, career highlights. My first job out of college was in, in the Middle East. That was a big highlight.
0: Whoa. How'd yeah, that I covered,
1: uh, I I went, It was so I've told the story before, but it was 2009 and the economy was very scary and the journalism industry was even scarier. So a professor of mine really encouraged me to, if I, I told him I wanted to sort of report from abroad and he's encouraged me to go now instead of waiting to get into a newsroom and sort of work your way up and then maybe eventually they'll give you a plane ticket right. and actually send you somewhere. That doesn't happen as much. It's coming back, which is wonderful, but in two thousand and nine it really looks like it might be dead, and so I um had some connections to the the Levant area in the Middle East. I'd studied abroad in Jordan, and I'd studied Arabic a bit, so I went to Beirut and lived there for two years. That was my first job um and I covered banking,
0: <laughs> oh my God,
1: yeah, so I wrote about banking as a twenty one year old kid, basically.
0: What a cool adventure
1: It was great, yeah, I loved it. So
0: you lived over there for two years,
1: yep, that's right
0: in Beirut. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. so you said yeah the 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 uh, journalism space is a little scary in 2009 so I'll move to Beirut what could be what could be nothing I mean nothing it was a very sweet
1: spot in in lebanese history right in 2009 the Syrian civil war hadn't started yet and you know we didn't know that it would start and so it was it was really Beirut was a city on the rise at that moment it's just tragedy after tragedy lately but um at the at that time I'm so grateful to have seen it and I've been to you know, I've been I've seen things that just aren't there anymore. Like a lot of landmarks in Damascus, I visited Syria while I was there a few several times, and yeah, I'm I'm very lucky to have seen them because they're not there
0: now. Oh, well, I I always tell people don't let this pasty face <sighs> fool you. I am Lebanese, at least oh, partial Lebanese, by living in Dearborn my whole life. So <laughs> I grew up in Dearborn. I didn't realize so, you were in
1: Dearborn. That's really funny. Yeah, not, honorary for enough. sure. If not, Lebanese. I don't live there
0: anymore, and it's funny because I grew up. I'm in my 50s, so I remember my mom and dad would take us to the other side of town, of Dearborn, where there was a Lebanese food. My dad had friends mm. who were Lebanese, and we would always be like the only, <laughs> the only people not speaking Arabic in the restaurant. And my, my my sister and I used to hate it, but then we grew to love it. And now my kids grew up eating Lebanese food, and so I have two daughters, and they live not in Michigan anymore. And every time they come home, they're like, "We're eating Lebanese." we're <laughs> eating every damn day we're home. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to eat it that much. <laughs> anyway, so after you left uh, the Middle East, where did you
1: yeah. go? Yeah, New York City. And I've been here ever since. So I've been in New York for, it'll be 10 years in October. So what
0: what, what was your next job after, after?
1: My next job was managing a Whole Foods market. I decided when I was in Beirut that I was obsessed background. with- Yes, absolutely. It was perfect. I had no idea at the time, but I thought I wanted to cover the food industry, which I did end up covering for the next- I don't know, five years or something, seven years. But I thought I would should get some experience in it, which is not a natural instinct for like journalism schools won't tell you to do that. But I am so grateful for those two years I spent. It was the, It's the busiest Whole Foods in the world. It's the one at Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And so it was baptism by fire to New York City, just like so many people coming through. <laughs> but also like I got tons of experience with a an urban loading dock which is just an insane place <laughs> to be you know i saw retail firsthand and shortages and recalls and buying and SKUs and just like learned all the lingo that i would need in this in this field that i didn't even know i would end up here but it was probably the best education i could get was just a couple yes. years in a grocery store amazing yeah
0: I have as I mentioned two daughters and one of them did that usual college kid thing like well there's really not that much time left in the summer so there's no no job I can get and I was like you know I know that factory down the way is hiring temps and so she's like yeah but I'm not gonna work in a factory I was like you know you really should consider it and she went for I think six weeks hated it hated it but what was so crazy as a you know I'm an automotive guy so I knew what the kind of work she was doing was not easy. But I remember her saying, oh, my God, the incoming quality is so horrible some days. And then they blame us for, you know, our 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 production being slow or the quality. of." And I was like, oh, my God, my little girl is growing up. And then her first job was working at one of the vaccine companies where they have she supports a factory system procurement. And I was mm. like, you, you will always be happy if you get food service or like you did retail or factory. For the rest of your life, you're going to be with that experience, even if it's 10 weeks.
1: Totally. Yeah. It's also really important to spend, like she mentioned, income inequality. Like one of the reasons I moved out of Annapolis, which I love Annapolis, but it's a very affluent area. And Every kind of diversity is educational. And so like living in, I live in, I live in Harlem. I've lived in Harlem for 10 years. And the, the income diversity here, just the grand spectrum from the, just like people pulling up in amazing cars and having like this really classic sort of Harlem Renaissance lifestyle to, you know, all the way down to the bottom. If you don't see that every day, it's very easy to ignore. Yeah, And it's the same in, in like, you know, working in retail, you see people who have been in retail for 20 years and that's a hard thing to think about. I think it's such hard work. Right. It's important right? to oh, see it with your own eyes.
0: It is. So what was the next job after Whole Foods?
1: A couple other jobs in the food industry, um, just marketing. I did some wholesale distribution, which was interesting because that was for an importer. So I started well, to You
0: are a logistics company. person. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: I, I had, had no idea I was, but I was. <laughs> That that was where I learned about like landed cost. He would just like pay, you know. He was a small importer, one container per year coming in um to the to New York, but did that for a second, and then finally got back into journalism and covered agriculture, which eventually led me to covering supply chain. My last job before this one was at SupplyChainDive.com. Oh
0: yeah, I read which that. is
1: a website you probably know and and folks know. Yeah did two and a half years there. And that was, it was fantastic. The trade publication, industry focus, but no paywall, like sort of newsletter based. So straight into right. your inbox every day. And lots of, I mean, I wrote 400 stories in my first year. So just like Whoa. so much volume, like learning every <laughs> single issue just inside and out. It was the best education for oh covering. Leg- I mean, with all that practical experience combined with just like having to wrap your head around every issue really quickly and and write fast. Yeah. It was oh good training. God.
0: I wrote an article. I think it took me I just published it over the week. I think it took me three weeks just to I mean it's, it's so I, I could <laughs> it's not a work muscle at Joe. I could, yeah I could not work at supply chain dive or anywhere else for that matter. But that's crazy. That's a lot of writing. So you must just go mm-hmm. boom. <laughs> like, I've seen people like yourself who can write that fast. It's like as fast as they can type, just <laughs> that must be.
1: Yeah, I'm a terrible typist too, which is ironic. <laughs> I don't know. Um, my accuracy is really bad, but it's a it's a muscle. And honestly, if I stopped doing it, I'd get slower. Oh, yeah. I used to you write a lot. Of, I used to
0: write a lot. The logistics of logistics started mm-hmm. as a blog, so I used to write. But I still had a day job. I was running a logistics company. I'd write on the weekends or at night which is never easy. But anyway, so you joined Business Insider two years yeah. ago. What, what Ooh, drew no, you there? I joined
1: seven months ago, actually. So,
0: oh, OK. Seven yeah, months yeah. ago. So what what, what drew you there?
1: They, they very kindly asked, which was really <laughs> nice. There, there's a reporter, really talented reporter at Business Insider called Rachel Premack, who used to cover trucking and some logistics stuff as well. And she was moved over to the investigations desk and now does really amazing, deep investigations that take months and months and months. And so they were looking to sort of fill her chair. And I'm not really a trucking person. I write about it occasionally. I have a passing knowledge, but it's not super deep. What I'm fascinated by is e-commerce logistics. And honestly, with the rest of Business is a fairly mainstream business publication. So like I thought that would those two things would integrate really seamlessly. They have really strong retail coverage, really strong tech coverage. And so the intersection between tech and retail and logistics, I mean, it was always there. But- at this point, it's More you've got to be covering ever. it. Yeah, it's really important. So I sort of saw the potential there and joined the team, and yeah, it's been great.
0: I think you know, you say I, uh, you yeah, know, I don't know trucking, I don't know this, but one of the things I'm always impressed by journalists is, and I, and I can say this just for my own blogging, and I go, I, I always say there's a difference between being a blogger like myself and being a, mm. a writer and writing articles for a publication. Is the bar is much higher? There's editors. There's fact checking all the other stuff. I always say blogs, (laughs) mm, you know, bloggers just look at other articles and bloggers, that's their research. (laughs) And so what I always think is you get really good at an industry when you have to write about it, because you have to get behind the scenes all the time and go, why is this happening? And you think about the industry in a different way when you write. That's, that's been my experience. So.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think my editors who are not, don't come from logistics background or think I know a lot about trucking, but because <laughs> I read some of the best writers who write about trucking, that's why I can say it ain't me. <laughs> and I'm fine with that.
0: <laughs> well, you do a great job. And I again, I think today's topic is last mile innovation. And I know when we were offline prepping, you were talking about things that were just going over my head. And I was like, oh my God, there is so much going on. And I was kind of shocked and I was like, you think you're kind of keeping up because you hear this or that. And then you realize how quickly things are happening in the, mm-hmm. in the last mile space. And it is mind boggling. First question for you about Last Mile Innovation, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. We talked about a lot of stuff offline, and and please feel free to say, Joe, I have no idea you shouldn't have asked that. But (laughs) one of the things I was asking somebody the other day, and I'll ask you, is Last Mile and Small Parcel kind of the same business, or are they first cousins? Are they brother, sister? How do you look at Last Mile versus Small Parcel?
1: Well... There's overlap, but they're not exactly the same in my mind for one big reason, which is, well, okay, e-commerce used to. Be, I'm gonna uh, not all parcels e-commerce, but I'm gonna talk mostly about e-commerce because okay. I think that's the the big question mark out there in the industry right now. Like yes you know, B2B parcel is still B2B parcel. But when it comes to e-commerce, it used to be fairly simple. You had, And by used to be, I mean, like maybe five That's years a lot ago, ago yeah. <laughs> yeah. you had, you know, you had a, your primary carrier that you worked with and you had a secondary carrier probably for extra stuff or other zip codes or whatever. And those carriers would pick up <laughs> on a regular scheduled basis and all was well. I'm sure it wasn't that simple, but right. it was a lot more simple than it is today because because we're so strapped for capacity right now and we can talk about the reasons why that is right. but there are shippers and retailers especially I think need a better understanding a deeper understanding of what those parcel carriers were doing and that's where you start to separate out the last mile from what I guess I'll call the middle mile so <laughs>
0: right um, so you know, I can talk about my own experience with small mm-hmm. parcel just to kind of uh, maybe lay a foundation here. When I was at a little logistics company, we, we were a, a franchisee of a company that was a reseller of, okay. of this stuff. Like, and I remember at the time, the owner was saying, well, yeah, this business used to be killing it, the small parcel business, he said, but now the internet's t- taking all that away. So there used to be a lot of stuff that was sent back and forth you know official documents that became mm-hmm. online documents and 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 like mortgage closing papers would be sent that way which all seems kind of weird now but he said yeah a lot of the business that we once had kind of went away and I was like oh okay i didn't give it much thought and we we worked with a lot of UPS and then we did a little bit of FedEx and occasionally we we dipped our toes in DHL just as they left the market and i thought okay that was just it was to me sleepy part Mm -hmm. of the logistics business. And I remember at the time I said, you know, we should get rid of this. It's not as high margin or it's wasting our time. And we ultimately did get rid of the small parcel. And it seemed like who needs it, right? That's how I felt. This was not so many years ago, seven, eight years ago. And now I think, oh my God, they they probably had to come back and, and get that service again because the demand has gone crazy. And so we talked offline about UPS and FedEx have always mm-hmm. been there. They're the ones who you've said, I have a package, I'll use them and they will send it. And But things have changed with, with them because they exploded during this e-commerce boom. And now they're going back and saying, does this make sense for us? So talk about where UPS and FedEx are today when it comes to uh, e-commerce.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start with UPS because it's a, it's a simpler story. I think they have a new CEO. Newish, She's barely new anymore. Um, Carol Tomei, who I've written just thousands of words about at this point.
0: Well, tell us about her before you go any further.
1: She's, oh, sure. She came from Home Depot. She was a CFO. She's a finance person. She was in banking in her early career. Very pragmatic sort of person. And that's what they, UPS, I think the, the story is that they, the board had a list of sort of attributes and skills that they wanted in a new CEO. And they looked around internally and they didn't have the person they needed internally. And she was on the board, had been for over a decade. And oh, so wow. um, they approached her. She had retired and uh, they approached her and she couldn't resist. And that sort of fits with her her profile. My favorite story about Carol Tomei is there's a moment in her career where she was offered a fairly uh, simple, like easier position that would give her two years in Paris Or um, a what could be a fairly adversarial acquisition somewhere if it was Arkansas or Missouri or Mississippi. I can't remember. And she chose the acquisition because it, it was more challenging. That's 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 who she is. It's fascinating.
0: Oh, that is that, that is a different kind of yeah. person because I think I'd be like I oh would have been God, in Paris very Southwest. quickly, yeah. <laughs> right, and I mean,
1: right. she she was retired and she's chosen to to take a job where she taking
0: one of the biggest jobs. Well, you and could the take.
1: Teamsters as well. Like she's never dealt with the Teamsters before. That's uh, this not a pool I'd want to wade into, but. There she is. So yeah, yeah, respect for sure. (laughs) I've written some, I've written some tough articles about her, but like there's, there's respect behind them for sure. But her strategy is, is better, not bigger is sort of the the tagline that she keeps using, which means we're just going to look at our business and, and stick with the customers that make sense for our bottom line. It's not very complicated.
0: Now, does that mean they're giving higher prices to some people like to, to to discourage the business or are they just saying no to some business or both?
1: You know, I, I'm not I'm not your person for that. <laughs> there is there is some cutting going on that I know for sure. Um, the experience of a UPS customer these days um, or a former UPS customer, you'd have to you'd have to talk to them directly because I wouldn't want to speak to the tactics right. that I haven't verified. But the result is that you're likely moving less business with UPS if you're an e-commerce shipper. Unless your name is Amazon.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's it's funny because we talked about this when we we're prepping. It seems that like, you know, if you're not from the logistics business and you go, oh, well, I have stuff that has to mm-hmm. move. I'll call a trucking company. Of course, they will want this. Or I'll call a broker. Of course, or I'll call UPS FedEx. Of course, they want that. And what we're learning over this last year is that, you know, not all customers are created equal. And, com- you know, people like uh, Carol are saying, Hold up, hold up. <laughs> we have to make money too. We have to think strategically. We are going to say no when it makes sense for us. I'm sure it's a respectful no. <laughs> and we've seen that with trucking companies. I just think, I think not so long ago, we saw XPO was it XPO that said we're going to do less Amazon work because they didn't want to drop trailers. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, long. but
1: I'm not going to confirm it without googling right. it, it first. It, yeah.
0: right, right, right. I probably shouldn't even say it until until I double check it, but. But that, that kind of thing is happening. And we've seen it with Amazon where you say, hey, look, you're going to be a very good seller. You're going to be a very good partner with us, or we're not going to do mm-hmm. business with you, or we're going to raise your costs. So it's not the same as walking into a restaurant and say, this is what I want, and I'm the customer, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the FedEx story was very similar. They weren't as explicit about sort of picking and choosing, but they were cutting customers last year. The line that they're, you know, I interviewed Brie Career, who's the chief marketing and communications officer of FedEx, two weeks ago now, and um, I was I was interviewing her because FedEx's on time performance has really dipped to the point where not only industry folks but consumers are starting to notice. Right, and she s- said part of that was due to the fact that FedEx is still growing, whereas other carriers are are even regionals are saying like we're closed, we're full, you know. Capacity isn't finite, you can invest and add labor notwithstanding, but you it's possible like every every time you put a cap, it's a choice. And I have heard from some industry folks that FedEx is actively recruiting or pursuing UPS customers who have had their capacity cut. So they are trying to grow at what cost I think is a a big question right now.
0: just imagine if you were at one of these large companies and somebody says, you know, we're doing more business than ever before and e-commerce is exploding and we're a great stock pick and all this. And then somebody says, how is our profit? <laughs> you have to say, our profit is, nah, it's okay. You'd be like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I can see why these people would all be kind of tapping the brakes a little bit saying, let's, let's figure out what makes sense for us uh, to make sure we're a profitable business too. So, so. We have this, all of a sudden, this enormous demand. We all know about that. That's the e-commerce mm-hmm. boom, and everything, everybody wants their, their stuff delivered. And then we have UPS and FedEx grew like weeds, but at the same time, they're now saying, guys, we are going to make sure we're doing the right business. We're going to be better, not bigger. So there's a demand for capacity that's not there, right? Mm-hmm. So before we leave UPS and FedEx, talk about roadie.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is... um This is another, Brody is a, is a gig on demand carrier um, based out of Atlanta. And I think they're national at this point, but they got their start with, uh, luggage, which is really interesting. Um, they, their start was they wanted to, when, you know, when your, when your luggage is delayed, you need to get it back. There are all these flight attendants and, and airport staff leaving the airport every day, coming into your neighborhood likely. So why don't we put those two things together? That's how the company started. It's now like a, a, a very substantial on-demand delivery carrier. So gig-based, meaning like you accept the, the drivers, accept sort of one job at a time. Um, and they're not employees of the company. And um, UPS uh, just bought it. They announced that. Um, well, they will have bought it. They, they announced the acquisition on Friday and then it'll close in Q4 that I don't think it was shocking to, uh, if you're paying attention, uh, Rodi's based in Atlanta and UPS was an investor. Home Depot was also an investor, which is where Carol Tomei came from to right. UPS. So the the sort of relationships there are interesting. I've, I've written about a few months ago, I think it was in June, Carol Tomei got a question at Investor Day about same day delivery. And she said, we've got a team of people on it, looking at it. And if you know anything about UPS, you know that, Creating an entirely new line of business in the context of the Teamsters is just not going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen quickly with the uh, yeah. the next Teamsters negotiation, negotiation is in 2023. It's too close at this. It just wasn't likely. So an acquisition was probably coming if UPS was going to do anything at all. And the pre-existing relationship with Rhodey was in my head when she said that. And I think it was in a lot of folks heads as well.
0: So Rhodey will pick up like at a Home Depot and deliver to my house potentially oh, yeah. if they're they probably they're at least they're at least regional or super regional maybe even national If they yeah aren't.
1: it's with the gig if they're players, not national difficult yet they will tell be. <laughs> yeah because the, you know a gig platform is as good as as many drivers you have on it so so it's less discreet than a carrier who says what their zip codes are you know what i mean
0: yeah so the, so that gets back to this that that same question i asked you earlier is this is a gig economy company like like roadie is that you know, competitor with UPS and FedEx, and I think it's just complementary, probably because they aren't exactly the same kind of business. You know, the way we described it here.
1: Well, I would argue and have argued that it is a, is a competitor, but it's not not for the service. It's not a competitive service, but it is competing for the volume. So, right in the same way that curbside pickup is technically a competitor to traditional parcel delivery in that <laughs> right. all of this online but I don't care how I most consumers don't care right. how they get their stuff right. they want to order it from their phone and they want it to show up right. and so you know a couple of years ago it was very very easy to see when the parcel ecosystem stopped and the gig economy started because if you wanted right. it now it had to be in the gig there was no other way to right. do it there were traditional courier services fedex has one fedex same day city is is very much closer to a traditional courier which is expensive. I mean, if you've ever like documents you mentioned earlier like the kind of courier services that used to right. ferry documents around. They're pretty expensive. Yeah, they're all those not, guys on know, bikes
0: riding around New York City. Exactly.
1: <laughs> they're still there, but they're not 10, you know, it's not 10 bucks. It's it's more than that. So Yeah. Yeah, so I think they are competitive in that it's about the purchase. It's about the 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 e-commerce purchase volume and how that's moving around. And right. so if you're going to lose your business, to if you're going to lose, if one, if you want those packages to begin with, but if the consumption is going to shift to services that don't require small parcel delivery in the traditional sense, then you, that is, I mean, that's something I would be concerned about if yeah. I were in these businesses. And it sounded like Carol Tellme was concerned about it. And so now she's got a stake right. in this, in this faster form of, of delivery.
0: Right. And when we talk about UPS, we all know that's a small pulse. What do you call a parcel or package, small parcels, small package? It just doesn't matter.
1: I mean, I, when I'm talking to industry folks, I use parcel, but when I'm writing, I, I try to use package more because I think it's
0: layman's <laughs> so, you know, terms. We've always had UPS, we've always had FedEx, DHL does to the U.S. and uh, the international stuff. And then mm-hmm. do you consider Amazon also a parcel provider? Absolutely.
1: Okay, yeah. So
0: they're competing against those guys, too.
1: Well, I mean. Yeah, I was just looking at some market share numbers and and Amazon is the is the main point of growth in terms of market share right now.
0: Free commerce deliveries.
1: Uh yeah, absolutely. Amazon logistics is and I mean, that's a similar it's that's a similar map to sort of gig economy companies. It's like at this moment is Amazon logistics a direct competitor to UPS and FedEx in this in the sense that the customer interacts with them the same way? No. But are they taking market share from them? absolutely
0: oh my gosh this this is they said this when we we're prepping i think this is like the wild west you know we had this nice orderly system for so many years which was in mm-hmm. ups and fedex and and then all of a sudden there's amazon and it's saying is amazon really a, a parcel provider i guess and then All the gig economy shows up and e-commerce explodes and you go, whoa, just everything's wide open. (laughs) Well,
1: the the complicating factor too, Joe, I mentioned the middle mile earlier. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what the startups in this space are doing is looking at what a parcel carrier is and carving off chunks of it Mm -hmm. so that they can do it just as well is the sense. So like, what is a parcel carrier? A parcel carrier is pickup, sortation, and delivery. So those three things. Sortation is where you get all the packages into a warehouse and you figure out what truck they should go on to actually get where they're (laughs) going. This one
0: goes west. This one goes east. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You sort
1: them. So what if you could hire sortation for your retail volume, get, get a truck of your own to drop all your packages at a sortation facility that doesn't belong to UBS or FedEx, and then have five different regional carriers come to that facility and pick up your volume, all of a sudden, you've sort of, you're half of a parcel carrier. Do you see what I mean? Right. Like, right. that's what the startups are doing. Some of them are even creating software so that you could be your own sortation facility. Target is now, I think they're going to have eight sortation facilities by the end of the year. Oh, sorry. And, um, and Amazon has a sortation network as well. So the lines are getting really blurry and <laughs> keeping say. up with it is hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy. Every once in a while, I I step back and say, remember Amazon? They were a technology company. And then I remember them saying, oh, yeah, they opened up some big distribution centers. You know, like, oh, OK, I guess so. And I, I think we all knew they were like a big customer for UPS and FedEx, I guess. I don't know if they mm-hmm. did work with both, but I remember, I think it was UPS said, we can't. That was FedEx. Was it FedEx? One of them said, we can't that do all of your There was a big breakup.
1: Shutdowns. Oh, well. I mean, FedEx completely broke up with Amazon pretty much in 2019. UPS is still has a lot of Amazon volume.
0: So for a long time, I would hear people say, I wonder if Amazon's going to get into logistics. And I remember some, Charlie DeHoney was on my podcast. He said, they're not getting into logistics. They are logistics. They've yeah. been in it for a long time. and. It's 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 really interesting when you think about it. A, a tech company that is now what the second or first l- largest employer in America, mm-hmm. with all these DCs and people driving trucks around. The prime trucks never stop driving down the street. I swear they just circle. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So anyway, we covered a little a lot of ground already, and I've got so much more to ask. So t- talk a little bit about postal injection.
1: Well, you mentioned DHL earlier, and. um Last, on Friday, actually, um, I I had the news that they're going to invest $300 million in a service called D- e- DHL E-Commerce Solutions. And that is, we just talked about sortation. Basically, uh, DHL E-Commerce Solutions is sortation capacity, then injects packages into the postal service. It's a very common strategy. Amazon right. does it. It's the first thing Amazon did. So what
0: is postal injection?
1: It's what is it? It's when you hand off packages to the pre-sorted packages to USPS for the final delivery. You don't actually deliver anything, but you do sort everything and take it in and sell it. And So you you more or less say
0: this big group, this pallet goes to this zip code, this pallet goes to this zip code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: This is where I'm not, I'm not an actual actor in the space. (laughs) Right.
0: but it's more or less like that.
1: The the specific stuff there. But that's more or less like that. Yeah, you don't have a delivery workforce of your own. You take in packages, you hand them off to the USPS.
0: And and by the way, that's, I think, how Pitney Bowes mm-hmm. handles that business. So Pitney Bowes would say, yeah, we compete against FedEx and UPS, but we do it through the US Postal right. Service. And I think what's interesting about that is when you do stuff like that, you can return you know, you the, you want to return stuff, you just put it in your mailbox because UPS USPS is picking mm-hmm. it back up. So it's it's an interesting interesting approach. And Pitney Bowes is not the only people. So you said DHL just invested.
1: Yeah, they're going to invest three hundred million dollars in their network for, over the next five years. But UPS has a has a small outfit that does it as well. Amazon Logistics started as a postal injection operation and has since grown their own sort of last mile either, you know, obviously much larger than that now. But back in 2012, 2013, that's where they got their start in sort of controlling right. their own destiny and I mean there are lots more <laughs> right. but the reason it's becoming more and more relevant because it again I mean what part of parcel wasn't sleepy five years ago but Ugh. postal injection was very sleepy not that it wasn't good business or important right. an important service it's just what I, I don't know what would I be writing about it probably not <laughs> but the reason right. it's really interesting now is because postal injection is particularly good at handling light packages. And nobody wants packages under a pound. They're, they're not good business for most carriers. And so packages under a pound, like if you, if you order like a couple of cosmetics items from a direct to consumer cosmetics company or a single item of clothing, which is these really light packages, they happen all the time at greater frequency. And this is one of those services that is particularly equipped to handle those and why they're becoming even more popular is because. Sorry, I'm going to get really deep in the weeds now, Joe.
0: <laughs> that's all right.
1: As delivery gets faster, inventory is getting more distributed. So you need more. It's not there's two or three warehouses in the U.S. can right. get everyone yep. everything they need in two days, but that's not enough anymore. Nope. What you need is every population center needs its own little outpost, so that you can get the SKUs that they're going to order. You got to know what SKUs they're going to order. And you can get those SKUs to them really quickly. Right. If you've got that kind of network, then a postal injection service like DHL e-commerce solutions or any of the others isn't as slow as it used to be. Right. Because you're so close already.
0: Right. So I think what we're looking at is, and and I think when Amazon first started investing, they said, we're going to have this humongous million square foot, probably millions. I don't even know the real numbers big Mm. distribution center or whatever they call it whatever they their uh, logistics term is but Mm -hmm. now what i think the whole industry sees is we're going to move inventory closer to the population center so we can do same day next day and Mm -hmm. i think that will be same day next day for virtually every nfl city right Mm -hmm. and then probably next day for all the cities that are within you know the next day of those nfl cities i mean i don't
1: yeah, I mean, same day, next hour, I think is probably more likely <laughs> right. in the in the big ones. I'm in Manhattan. There's nothing I can't get right now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, because you're in the popular. You know what? And I don't want to go too far into this because we, mm-hmm. we this is probably I should stay in the shallow end. But when people talk about drones, I always think you know, is drones really ever going to deliver? Like, oh, I ordered stuff from Amazon, a drone dropped it off on my front porch. I think, and I always think by. My- thought is you, you live in manhattan or harlem or anywhere in new mm-hmm. york city and you wake up in the morning and there's you know <laughs> thousands of drones in the sky you go what a beautiful day right. it is <laughs> with, with the thousands of drones flying over overhead potentially crashing into each other
1: <laughs> right yeah, actually i've <laughs> talked to the drone folks and and big cities are not their prime target at it would all. be islands it's not going to make so any be- sense
0: Take it to the mountaintop, take it to the islands, and I'll tell you. I, I mean, mean, the
1: suburbs is where it makes the most sense, sort of medium density. It's not unattractive density. You still need density for any sort of delivery operation, but just physically it's feasible and, and safe.
0: I live about an hour from Detroit and I keep thinking there's a lot of like hunting that happens out here. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking drones flying by, they're getting shot. There's just no way around. <laughs> It'd just be too much. It'd be just too damn tempting. To go. There it is. Who knows? That could be a diamond ring. Uh, Boom.
1: (laughs) I'm not going to say who, but I've heard that exact same thing from very high place logistics executives.
0: (laughs) I'm not surprised. I thought it was a deer. I'm sorry. (laughs) So talk about postal injection. So this last mile that you talked about, we're talking a little bit about innovation. And I know you talked about some companies that you thought were interesting I think you talked about Front Door Collective. So this oh, is sure. probably yeah. one of many. So I, we're not trying to do an infomercial. We're just talking about what's kind of out there. So talk a little bit about Front Door Collective.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Front Door Collective is a big story I had a few weeks ago. And they, oh, they're oh they a, a last mile delivery network with um, nationwide coverage. And I think it's 50% of zip codes, which is a lot of the population. Right. As you probably know, it's more than it sounds.
0: So that would probably be, that would probably be, 80 or 90% 80, 90, it's, it's
1: high. Yeah. They're created by, they're a network of more than a hundred Amazon delivery partners. Amazon's delivery service partner network is made up of the same sort of contractors that FedEx uses. Some of them do work for FedEx as well. They work for XPO. They work for a bunch of different, anyone who right. uses contract labor, you could um, work for Amazon and work for other companies as well. But These are more than it makes it a better story if it's Amazon. So there are more than 100 (laughs) Amazon delivery partners that have joined this organization. It's a franchise model, which is new in this space. And they're going to be providing same day and next day delivery from sort of the back of a store to the to the end consumer. This is like a very sorely needed. I mean, the gig economy we've talked about and that. Is present and working in in retail, but basically what we're seeing, and I'll have an article about this later this week, is that the the one to one courier model is not going to last. Is what sort of industry folks tell me.
0: Is, is that because it's undependable or?
1: Well, I mean, you're a logistics guy. Does that make any sense to you? Having one package and one car right. make one trip from right. from point okay. to point at scale? Right. That's not gonna that's not gonna work. <laughs> so right. How can you get it's basically at, at some point you're just building a route. Right. And and that may still work with the gig labor model, but that's sort of where everything is headed. Is is anybody with a with a last mile same day sort of on-demand service, I think, is looking at their how many orders per car, how many orders per vehicle. So Front Door Collective is not a gig. It's a contract service, you know, they're they're sort of delivery professionals. They've been doing this for a while, but they're they're providing that same service that has to date mostly been provided by gig companies which right. is that sort of point to point but they're going to build routes on top of it not the only ones there are there are some some of the most effective same day logistics are done by companies you've never heard of that I've only recently heard of which are right. just deeply unsexy you know con- they're just logistics providers who've decided to specialize in a very specific right. thing they have something, something logistics as their name and they operate in, I know one in New York, I know one in California, like they're just logistics companies. They're not venture backed, they were bootstrapped. Those are the ones you don't hear of a lot. And I'm trying to figure out ways to tell exciting stories about those companies. (laughs) But yeah, Front Door Collective is is one of them. The only difference though, is that they have national coverage, which is very rare with a service this quick.
0: I think when you talk to, you know, big companies that, that, you know, let's just say it is a a Home Depot or Lowe's Mm -hmm. or Best Buy or whatever it might be, I think they would be a lot more comfortable saying, we have national distribution through this company, or at least regional, as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, yeah, we, we're constantly vetting gig economy workers to do it, or you know, working with companies that, as you said, don't really have the, um, the route. They just had picked up and delivered. They're basically being couriers.
1: Yeah. I mean, five years or whatever we're calling the acceleration of the complexity in this space, it's not enough to... I mean, can you imagine the level of hands-on management it takes now to manage e-commerce logistics? If you don't have any of those assets in-house yourself, if you're just used to one or two pickups a day, that's what you've been doing for ages. It's a lot more complicated now. And all of a sudden, all of your stores are warehouses, which, you know, sounds fantastic. It sounds like you've got a really diffused distributed warehouse network, but that the management of that as well, I think re- retailers just, They're looking for, it's never going to be simple, but they're looking for simpler. So that's what National does.
0: Right. So I think what you're saying is it's sorting itself out. Some things you see in the market today won't be there in a few years and new models will are and will continue to proliferate until we find what's the right fit. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, companies are, are the, the startups and the the ones who've been in the space for a while are just, they're diversifying faster than I can keep up. They're working with each other in new ways. All of the kind of companies That's we've crazy. mentioned are partnering up. I mean, these gig providers are partnering. They're not just contracting directly with retailers. They also contract with 3PLs, ones you may not think of where, you know, a logistics company you've been working for for years, all of a sudden offers same day service. How do they do that? They likely did not build right. that in-house. They likely right. partnered with another company that maybe they're disclosing, maybe they're not. So trying to figure all that out is is what makes my job frustrating and exciting.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's also interesting, and I want to go too deep into this because it's a whole other podcast, but when you look at like people buying a couch online, that mm-hmm. isn't going through a parcel, that's going through one of the LTL companies. And even that, you start to less say- Less and
1: less so, Joe. Less and less so. How are those going? Well, so- LTL still big is a part of it because, well, to on drop. how it, where it's, I mean, at this point, like the products, when they lay, if they actually get out of the port, they're already sold. So that <laughs> the speed at which they need to get where they're right. going has changed and that it sometimes changes the way that they travel. But in terms of furniture last mile, like the actual delivery of the furniture, that's a place where the gig economy, I think, is particularly interesting because the economics of it were not great to begin with. And the gig economy might make more sense We'll we'll see, depending on sort of vetting and the pandemic has also made that all complicated because white glove, the standard for white glove last year was low because people didn't want people crossing the threshold. Once we get back to normal times, if if that happens and threshold delivery is a given, meaning you want people to come into your home, that's when I think it's going to get really, really interesting because that's a that's a difficult standard to meet for anyone.
0: I think so too and it's funny I joke about this when I, when I was young if somebody was knocking on the door you'd be like oh my god somebody's here and everyone runs to the door it's exciting <laughs> we have a guest right now you're like who is knocking on no, the door No, I panic like yeah, and then why? you're like i'm not and then you're like trying to look out the window without them seeing you and you're like oh it's my oh it's my neighbor okay th- there's a the thought that i'm not going to answer the door and i i uh, my mom is 87 and she now, you know, I'm over, she's using shipped to have her food shipped. And sure. I know she was like a little apprehensive. So I was at her house when it was delivering. Well, somebody was supposed to deliver at like 7 p.m. They got it to her house at like 10.30 <laughs> at night. And it's pitch black. Mm. And she's like, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that that's the guy. And, you know, it's, 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 to your point, it the bar is much higher. When you say it can't feel sketchy, and you know, it, mm-hmm. this is, I don't really care about people's tattoos, but I can see if you're a white glove delivery, you're like, you know, we can't go with the face tattoos. It's just <laughs> your giant neck tattoo. I know they're, it's going to scare old people. <laughs>
1: so, I mean, at this point in this labor market, I don't think anyone's been choosing.
0: Take what you can get.
1: Yeah. Well, and UPS re- really relaxed their tattoo policy last year.
0: Well, I think, yeah. They said tattoos think- are
1: fine, which was a big deal.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, God knows. I mean, if people had tattoos in the eighties, it was, it was hidden. It was a, it was very, it came from the Navy or punk rock or something. But now it's, I just always think it's just, you can't be, you can, you don't have to be scary to have a tattoo. <laughs> you know, a tattoo doesn't make you scary either. But the last mile, the bar is going to raise. And I wouldn't be surprised. Just like Safe Light, uh, the glass, glass repair, windshield repair, when they're mm-hmm. coming to your house, they send a picture of the, the person who's gonna come and what time they'll be there and you're like, okay, they've really gone out of their way to make sure you feel good about that person coming to your house.
1: Right. I mean, the 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 accuracy issue I think is really top of mind right now because it's not, especially in the current environment and with traditional parcel. We you know with UPS and FedEx as well, you don't get a window. Nope. You know, being able to track your item, no matter what it is or what mode it's traveling, whether it's on an ocean liner or or it's in somebody's trunk, right, is going to go a long way for for that. But honestly, in the younger generations, I don't think don't trust care. is an issue. They <laughs> no,
0: they don't care. No, I, I I'm in my fifties and I couldn't care less. I think I think what we have to do is you have to think some old people might be want something. And I also think like if you're a single woman, I think they're going to say, look, I want a little higher bar depending where I live. <laughs> right. I don't want to feel I don't want to feel ill at ease with my delivery people. But one other thing I wanted to talk, two other things I want to talk about. I got a long list for you here. So those regional carriers. So mm-hmm. all those regional parcel players, and I think yeah. there's like Speedy and Pitt Ohio, there's all mm-hmm. these regional parcel companies. How are they doing? During all this, are they, are they seeing booming business also?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was Lasership that said weeks ago, maybe even eight weeks ago that they were sold out for the holiday season.
0: Whoa.
1: They're also expanding new territories. Lasership is making a big move in Tennessee. Like there's, there's a lot going on there and yeah, they, they, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see what, what happens with them because the sky is the limit. And I think that at this point, It's about sort of personalities. Those are all private companies. So we'll see sort of what the actual players involved want to do. But I've heard a lot of M&A speculation with the regionals and like a ton of it. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But they're going to have an intense, I mean, everyone's going to have an intense peak season. And anyone without capacity right now is really starting to sweat. And because the, the regionals are sold out, just like UPS and FedEx. Right, are. so these
0: regionals will typically do two or three states in their little region. One's out in New England, one's out in California. Mm-hmm. I think Lone Star is in Texas. Yes. So, and then we have all these. And, and to your point, I, I I asked Ben Gordon, and he said, "Don't be surprised if somebody stitches those together." I don't don't think Ben's the only. I've heard one Ben knows. say that before, <laughs> right? Yeah. So. It's going to be interesting because that would be a competitor to UPS and FedEx, and uh, that would that would fill some of that demand that's out there for for more parcel carriers. And I could see it being who knows what, whatever they should do, even if it's a super regional, meaning discovering, Mm -hmm. you know, east of the Mississippi. That would be a relief to some, (laughs) but I think we really need some national.
1: (laughs) Yeah. there's a lot of nuance in in the regionals as well that I I feel like I'm not quite equipped to to discuss. They don't they don't act exactly like they're not just the equivalent of a national even in their own right jurisdiction. There are a lot of sort of zip code nuances where their service just isn't quite as uh, all encompassing. It can be a wonderful service, obviously. I don't mean to knock it, but I just know that there's nuance there that is beyond right. they my understanding. The way they evolved, right? <laughs> yeah, and I also I mean. A national stitch up would be enormous. I mean, right. like I just—it seems implausible to me, but I will excitedly write about it if and when it happens. <laughs>
0: right. Well, we know you. I'll will. also
1: throw in a plug as well. Um, Supply Chain Dive, where I used to work, has a wonderful map. It's a, a really great article written by Shafali Kapadia, who's the, the lead editor there. But they also have a really great usable map with all the regional carriers and you can just oh, see what their coverage great. is. Yeah. I think if you Google supply chain dive, regional parcel carrier, it'll come right up, but um, I, I can, use it constantly to reference for who right. covers what.
0: So if I can, if I find that, I will put it mm-hmm. in the show notes along with right. a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll also put a link to um, uh, business insider, but you're not off the hook yet here. So I know one of the things that uh, comes up quite a bit on the podcast is sustainability. So when we talk about mm-hmm. last mile, we have to talk about sustainability because it is not always the most sustainable thing the way we're doing it. So
1: hmm.
0: what are you hearing out in the market and from from people you talk to?
1: Well, the sustainability data from each company, at least the publicly traded ones who put out reports, tend to come in the spring. So the last time I analyzed sort of top line emissions for UPS, Amazon, FedEx, um, Walmart, those kind of companies was... In April or so. And let's see, companies are getting less carbon intense. That's true. But they're growing incredibly quickly. And so the top line emissions are still going up. I think that all of the solutions that are out there, like electric electric vehicles, obviously, no brainer. Let's do that faster. There are bikes and like all kinds of different smaller delivery vehicles that I hear about all the time. There are electric aircraft that are coming into the market very slowly, but they're coming all this is great. My focus is really on the impact of those things. And right now the impact is scaring me because there is such this huge transition right now in terms of our consumption to delivery. And I cannot tell you that I know what that's going to look like right. in no, terms of top line emissions, know. but it, it doesn't feel great.
0: <laughs> we need to concern ourselves with it. And I mean, I I, I always say the same thing. Some people would be going, oh, no, not more sustainability talk, Joe. But I feel like at this point, forget what your personal beliefs are on the climate. Nobody cares. Your customers are asking for it. That's what you need to know. It's like if somebody was to say, my customers really want customer service, but I really, really don't want to deliver that. You would never say that. Or my Mm -hmm. customer wants a good price, but we're never going to give them that. This is what they're asking for. Big brands or consumers are asking for it. Big brands are asking for it. We see the leaders in the industry are investing big. I just had the CEO of DHL Supply Chain. I think they're spending 8 billion Euro- euros between now and 2030 on sustain- sustainability. They they plan on having all their final mile vehicles as electric, just as you said. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see the line haul that will be still with diesel diesel fuel that's Mm -hmm. that's that's not going away but i also just i'm going to publish a podcast this week talking about carbon capture on those vehicles and that Mm. those are the kind of things we're going to see we're going to have to streamline those vehicles we're going to have to use them very very efficiently because i think we're we're able to measure now we're starting to measure and we should all have on our scorecard your on-time performance the cost You should probably measure, you know, if you damage anything. And we need to all add a KPI for sustainability, whatever that might be. Empty miles is not a bad one, but Mm. carbon impact matters. We need to concern ourselves.
1: It does. And The other thing that I think about a lot in, in this pandemic is that when I was writing about supply chain two or three years ago, there was a very clear relationship between just good, efficient operations and more sustainable operations. It wasn't right. an easy thing to write about or to like get press about. But if you're a good, solid, efficient operation with without a ton of empty space anywhere, right. where you're being efficient with your freight, where you're not putting things on planes when you don't need to, right. then you're going to be a more efficient operation. So the pandemic has not been good for any of those things, as right. anyone actually functioning in the space can, can attest. And also, when you combine the pandemic, which is not the only force out there. We're also having a ton of weather events. There's one right now. There's a typhoon right now. All of these weather events are creating the same sort of forces that knock all those sustainable, efficient operations out of whack. Right. And if that's not a wake-up call to understand that we need to more urgently look at how to actually change our operations right. instead of just fine-tuning I don't know what is, but right. I used to cover agriculture and the growing seasons are already shifting because of climate change. Like right. if you're in an industry that hasn't been directly affected by it, count yourself lucky. Right. It's coming. So right. I'm not sure what where the inter- urgency would come from. I don't know why humans seem to need to see something with their own eyes to do something about it, but go People to look- Brazil. I have. Go see. Right. It's here.
0: Yeah. And, and I think... Um... Also, when we talk about sustainability, I know uh, I can't remember the podcast, but I think that somebody just talked about, I think it's Timberland Boots, where they said, mm-hmm. hey, if, if if you let us wait a week to deliver your boots, and I think that's probably the farthest out, we will um, plant a tree for you. And I think they had like 20 or 30% of the people say, sure, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And and I think consumer behavior is going to be part of this. We're going to have to get over, you know, when you say, yeah, I can I really want that T-shirt delivered to the house today. And then so are you going to wear it today? No, but I would really like to try it on today. Well, <laughs> get over that. And then I know uh I said this the last topic. Reverse logistics is something that's also scary about e-commerce. I think mm-hmm. 30% of things that are bought online are returned, which is like, I think it's 6% for retail. So I know my daughters will tell me this, that, They order a sweater in three sizes or three colors or, you know, combination, Mm -hmm. try it all on and then send two back. And, you know, it's free from air quotes here, free, but there is an environmental impact. And at some point we need to just, again, change consumer behaviors saying we can't treat e-commerce like your fitting room, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of blame to go around on that one. (laughs) Um, I'm actually, I'm sure I sounded incredibly pessimistic about climate change just now, but I'm actually pretty optimistic about reverse logistics. (laughs) There's a lot of money going into the space right now, a lot of Mm -hmm. sort of fast accumulating expertise, new capabilities. Apparel is a place where we're not as far along, but things like electronics are really are really mature in terms of getting products to be productive again as soon as possible, which is great. Obviously, you don't bracket your electronics. That's what that's called when you order multiple sizes of something, bracketing. I don't think people are bracketing electronics very much. Maybe they are. I don't know. Like ordering multiple <laughs> game systems or something to try them out. I have, really have no idea. But it's its a place that I f- I'm hopeful is going to work itself out because it would be very right. good business to do so.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I think also a lot of people buy from brands. I know my daughters do. They buy from brands that encourage sustainability. So I think they will say, hey, help us be more sustainable by not doing certain things. And I think the brands I was at my mother's house watching Home Shopping Network. My mom doesn't buy much from there, but she said, you know, they do such a good job with the sizing and they have all these models walking out all different shapes. And they say, this fits me perfect. And I'm blah, blah, blah. And he describes himself and My mom said, Home Shopping Network does a fantastic job on sizing. Now, you compare that to what when you buy online. Women's clothes, I think, are notorious. (laughs) You buy, (laughs) the sizes vary so much between brands that who knows what size I am. How do I buy without bracketing, to your point, buying three different sizes or two different sizes and four different colors?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sizing would go a really, really long way. It's also, I think consumers want to... I agree that I think consumers want to spend with companies that try to be more sustainable. I think it's it's an easy out when we leave that up to the consumer because they're not experts in efficiency. Right. They're not they're it's not their job to be so. So we
0: we might have to educate them.
1: <laughs> well, we might, yeah. but we also could take some responsibility and not offer things right that aren't our terrible idea. <laughs> right. You know? Like yeah, and this is the, the we're never going to choose if, if the product is not in the, the for, we're looking at peak right now. If the product is not in the country right now, are you putting it on a plane? Probably, right. depending on the product, there's a lot of stuff going on planes right now that didn't that didn't used to go right. on planes that weren't intended to go on planes. It's a num that's the highest source of emissions for any freight movement. It's planes. If you can avoid them, you should for cost right. and emissions. If we're not doing that now, I think that just means that the system we've got <laughs> is not built right. to choose sustainability over consumption, and we need to figure yep. out ways to incentivize that correctly. I don't know how to do it. It's not my expertise, but I would like to see it done.
0: I do think brands could say, "Hey, we, we value the environment, and we we are saving this much, you know, carbon impact or, or environmental impact by not doing this anymore. So we're not going to do this for you. So if you want to do that, go somewhere else." And I think they'll gain some customers that way. I know um, more companies are B Corps. I think actually Patagonia, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah Patagonia. Patagonia, Patagonia is a B Corp, and I think they recently said to, I think it's Silicon Valley buys a lot of these, yes. Yeah like the knit vest. Exactly. Fleece vest. And I think they just told we're no longer going to put the Silicon Valley brand on the on the on those because they were doing a lot of those because they said they tend to be disposable because a guy leaves the company and doesn't wear it anymore. And I was like, well, that's... That. And again, it's on brand and they s- to told customers, thanks, but no thanks. Here's why we aren't doing that anymore. And hopefully, hopefully that kind of thing continues. As you said, take a little responsibility. I think also we're going to, at some point, be able to put, in addition to a price tag, here's also the environmental price tag of this. And that won't happen yeah, overnight. Yeah, that's
1: dicey, but yeah.
0: I feel very strongly about KPIs. And I always say you have to start your KPIs before it is 100%. So you're not is it going to be 100% accurate? Nope. But you got to start. <laughs> be at least directionally correct. Be within a, a deviation that you're comfortable with. So Anyway, enough of my blather. We covered a lot of ground here. So I want to get you before we talk about bit what you're doing over at Business Insider, please mm. give me some final thoughts on this this massive topic of last mile innovation.
1: <laughs> Ooh. Final thoughts. My final thoughts are if if you out there are having trouble keeping up, you're not alone. <laughs> I think the the best thing about being a journalist is it's My only job is to sort of figure out what's going on and and digest it and write about it. I don't actually have to do it, (laughs) which I'm grateful for every day. I think sometimes folks do ask me for advice or consulting or something. I get some confused folks in my inboxes being like, can you help me choose a carrier or something? No, I absolutely cannot. I don't I don't do this. I write for a living. I'm a journalist for a living. I'm a fairly expert in in doing that kind of work, but um, I really don't envy anyone out there right now and I hope that the stuff I write is is helpful.
0: It very much is. Very much is. So Talk about what's going on over at Business Insider and how we, how we can all subscribe. And I know we were talking prior to hitting the record button about paywalls. And you mm-hmm. said, Joe, you have to get over it and go through that paywall and you have some decent deals over at Business Insider and it is worth it to read Emma's articles. <laughs>
1: I mean, I didn't say you have to get over it. I said, I will break you eventually, <laughs> right, which is right. a different sentiment. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite message I get sometime on on LinkedIn or Twitter is, this is the one. This is the one that got me through the paywall. Yeah. I mean, Business Insider isn't all paywalled. We have, I think we have 500 journalists at this point. We cover everything from like celebrity culture to deep deep finance tech if if you if you're not reading business insider consistently i bet you probably are you just <laughs> hadn't noticed so start looking for us and i think you'll see us more often everything i write about logistics goes well everything i write at all goes behind our our prime paywall and the the idea there is that it's valuable and uh right. <laughs> I hope that over the last forty minutes or so I've ex- I've shown that it's worth Yeah, it. I've I've <laughs> taken a great a great amount of energy and, and sort of passion into this space and right I think it's one it's one dollar for your first month. So it's it's not a high bar, but give it a shot. <laughs> if you see something you like, there'll be more. And if you want to see something from me that I haven't tackled yet, I would be more than happy to hear it. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm extremely accessible and responsive as I possibly can be. So reach out and let me know what you're what you're worried about, what you're thinking about. The next couple of stories I've got going on, I'll just tease. I've got a big one coming up about the gig economy and how how and if it's going to be able to scale to the size and, and reliability that we need it to be. In this environment, I've got a lot more reporting coming out about at FedEx and the future of that company, about Amazon logistics and where it's headed and where it's not headed and how it sort of fits into the competitive set. So um, if any of that is of interest give
0: me a try. <laughs> I, I, I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And I also put a link Thanks. to Business Insider. And so you guys can reach out. Uh, and and I will throw this out that this is a pl- plug for Business Insider, but also for any information you get about our industry. Things are changing so quickly. As again, I described this as kind of the Wild West. It really is changing so rapidly. And I think if you aren't informed, if you don't know about companies like Front Door Collective, you don't know what What Emma was just talking about is a lot of it's new to me. And I look and go, oh, man, people ask me for help. I'm expected to be some I'm expected to be knowledgeable. And I always think that we, especially if you're freight brokers, for a long time, we saw our jobs just as, oh, I get trucks. I I don't know. I don't know their industry. Now we are all expected to specialize, have a niche, understand your customer's business. If you don't kind of expand your horizons by reading stuff like from Business Insider, you can't expand your horizons. It's the, the free stuff's just not good enough.
1: <laughs> well, and Joe, you mentioned earlier as well, I think what the pandemic has showed us was like a very sharp relief version of what we I've been talking about for years, which is, you know, maybe if you're in parcel logistics, you didn't need to think about ocean shipping right. before. Right. You are definitely thinking about it now. And if you don't have a basic understanding of how it works, right. and that you might not be getting all of that from Business Insider, but like, uh, maybe I'll just plug like, paid news in general (laughs) like expertise is valuable and right yeah it's it's worth paying for whether you're paying for it from me or from there are some amazing journalists in this space and i think this is a great time for for supply chain journalism which is being read so much more widely than it was you know even two years ago it's and really I think, exciting. I think
0: if you look also at the the way the world is moving, we're moving towards a lot more automation. You know, so a lot of shipments will be automated from beginning to end. Our big chunks of the big, big chunks of the supply mm-hmm. chain are going to be automated, which means we are going to have to step back and be advisors and consultants. Which means we have to have expertise beyond I know where to get a truck or I know I know the shipping lines and you don't. <laughs> and I think that requires us to educate ourselves. And again, I think I, I'm I'm from automotive. We think end to end, we think order to cash. That's right. the way we think. So if you can't think that way about the area you specialize in, you mentioned agriculture, If you're in the agriculture business, you better educate yourself. Get the magazines that your customers read. Anyway, enough of my blather. Emma, I can't thank you enough. You really are a wonderful resource when it comes to this last mile and just in general, everything I've seen from you has been uh wonderful. And again, I think it speaks very well of you, the people who uh say, Oh, yo, no, I can't wait for you to interview Emma. So those are people I respect very much. So you are a great follow on LinkedIn, and I am going to uh, be broken of my bad habit and actually pay for Business Insider. <laughs> so you guys should too.
1: <laughs> Bless your heart, Joe. <laughs> Thanks very much. It was really fun.
0: All right. We'll have to do it again. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward.